Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a music history podcast where I attempt to teach music history to my wife. And I attempt to be louder this time. (laughs) Yes, apparently she is quiet in the episodes. Which is really crazy because I'm never quiet. (laughs) Well, I didn't... I don't hear that, but I never listen to the shows in my car. But apparently if you do, then it might be kind of hard to hear. Sorry about that. So... This episode is late. Yeah. Seeing as it normally goes up in eight hours, and we're just now (laughs) recording it. That's my bad, guys. I worked all Memorial Day weekend, like Friday through Monday, and then I literally could not do a single thing yesterday. Like, I unloaded the dishwasher. That was my big (laughs) thing that I did, and I almost didn't do that. And for her, it's not like... Like, working for her is like 14-hour shifts, so... Like 13 to 14 13, hours. L- yeah, let's say 13. Well, you get there at 6.30 and don't and get don't home until like 8.30. Like 8:30. 8:30. <laughs> That's so true. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, like 14 hour shifts. So four 14 hour shifts in a row. I was dead. Kind of excessive. I was really, really tired. So but that's why this one's late. It'll be up. Well, I mean, it's up if you're listening to it. But <laughs> for us, it'll, <laughs> it'll be, be up, up now. It'll be up hopefully Friday or Saturday for us. So just like a day or two late, which isn't bad. Yeah, Nick's having a long work week too because it's a yep. short work week. Yep. But he's trying to fit into a lot of work into a short work week. Yep. All right. Well, those of you who follow us on social media already know that this episode's going to be late because I tweeted it. So oh, you already told the people? Yeah, I told them earlier today. Sorry, people. So follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash soundofhistory with an underscore after it. So that you can be disappointed in <laughs> us. <laughs> and then facebook.com slash soundofhistory. But I did not post it on Facebook, so you wouldn't have known. But follow us on Twitter. That's where we're most active anyway. Okay, well, now we're into... The best segment of the whole thing. At least some people's favorite segment. <laughs> Mika Definitely. is the host now. Mika is the host now. <laughs> I was thinking about just finding like a standard jingle to put in the entrance and exit of this show, but you always just make one up. So <laughs> I think I'm just going to keep running with that while you do it. Lord. I have something very important and very special to plug this week. One of my dearest friends and most talented friends. Sorry, all you other friends. Um, I'm offended. <laughs> I said one of. Um, my friend Madison Barron wrote a children's book that is cute as heck. Okay? It's adorable. It's actually probably very applicable to our audience. Really. It is <laughs> It is something that I have never seen a premise of a book before. Um, it is called My Daddy is a Hipster. And it's, it really is about the darndest thing. I've only seen a few pages of it because I wanted to just be able to read it and like experience it as everyone else experiences it, like when it's completed and everything. But oh my goodness, I cannot wait. I am ordering eight copies, I think we decided. <laughs> but um, it's going to be really adorable and she's going to do some pretty stinking amazing things. Her and Nick actually um, bounce ideas off of each other and... And share their writing with each other. It's just really cool to see that happen. It's like I brought together a great duo writing <laughs> team. But anyway, you should definitely follow Madison Farron Writes on Instagram. It's Farron is F-A-R-R-E-N. And the rest of it you can figure out. 
My Daddy is a Hipster is available right now for pre-order. If you order it soon, it will be here by Father's Day. And the website for that is madisonfarenrights.com. All right. Great. It's the probably the most well thought out <laughs> yeah. and like the thing that I'm most excited about of all of my plugs. Oh, and you've had some exciting plugs. I have had some exciting plugs. <laughs> I also have one other thing that is way less important know. to plug. See, I don't like this because I knew what Why? you were going to say for this first part, but now I'm back to not knowing what you're going to say. That's the fun <laughs> of it. No one knows <laughs> what I'm going to say. Now I have to try and decide if I'm going to cut it out or not. You're. N- <laughs> Do you cut out no, what I, I plug? <laughs> I was about to be really upset. I mean, you don't listen to the show, so as far as you know, I just cut out all of this, and this is just for you while we're recording, and then no one else hears this segment. <laughs> that would be literally tragic. This is the best part of the podcast. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> listen, I already said that Madison was my most talented friend. That's true. Anyway, the other plug is um, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness put out um, a cover of Slow Burn by Casey Musgraves, right? Yep. Okay, I thought so. I like her version a lot, but I also really, really have been jamming to his version recently. I've listened to it, I think, four times today. I'm just really into it. Okay, so are we done with your show within a show now? Is Mika no longer the host? No, Mika's still the host. And I would this like is to too much power. I don't <laughs> like the name of the thing. Listen, last week I said that I was just going to plug everything that I found interesting That's the true. previous week, and you said good because we have a shorter episode this next week. I was going to say I'm surprised that you remember you said that, but then I just I you just listened to, listen to the morning. show, so <laughs> that's why you remembered it. Yeah, I wasn't going to remember <laughs> it otherwise. I would like to, in the style of JVN, um, I would like to pass off the host menship to my cat. This is not CATV. This is something different. What is JVN? Jonathan Van Ness. Oh, I've showed you. He like created a TV show, like a news show with his cats. Oh, fun. During quarantine because he's an adorable human <laughs> being. Okay. Ajax, what do you have to say about, about music? We'll probably pick up. I All right, we're good. I they're scared of it. <laughs> we're done with this. <laughs> Mika is no longer the host. Boo! (laughs) We can move on now. Okay, now we're moving on. Ten minutes in. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm going to cut out a solid couple minutes of you trying to get the cats to talk. Why did they not? They always talk. Because they aren't trained. I'm sure sure they'll pop up in the background of the show. We're recording it right before they feed. They feed, they eat. (laughs) They're not aliens. Okay, well, now we're into music history. So do you want to tell us what we've been talking about a little bit for the past couple weeks? We talked about jazz, and then we talked about swing, and then we talked about that crazy dude who, like, is wild. Um, And then here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what we're talking about this week? Not Frank Sinatra. Yes. But crooners. Early crooners. Like, the birth of crooners. I am interested to hear this, actually. So I'm assuming you at least are familiar with crooners. So what is your definition of crooners? If you had to explain to someone what a crooner was, what would you say? They're like suave and they have a nice voice and they're like, it's kind of like instead of this big band aspect, you have like the one frontman person who's 
who's like carrying all of it okay. and so what are their what are their voices sound like just like smooth is it high pitched low pitch they're definitely is overall it loud? i feel like is it quiet i feel like they're more like tenors like a tenor two like i don't know high baritone is. like ba- baritone okay. one tenor two so it's it's not no not necessarily I don't feel like it's like deep, deep. Okay. Sometimes, I mean, like, I'd say in the middle, honestly. Okay. Well, we're gonna be talking about early crooners today, so like from the mid twenties through the thirties, that era, which is a little bit different than the crooners you're probably the most familiar with, because I mean, it's not Nat King Cole, it's not Frank Sinatra. Those guys are later. We're gonna talk about where those guys came from. So, you know, it might change a little bit, but we're going to see if you're right in what you said. We're going to do a crooner part two eventually, and then that's when we'll talk about all the all the big dogs. So just bear with us and we'll get there. It'll be a while, but we'll get there. Making me wait. Also, Sinatra never considered himself a crooner. I get that. So maybe he won't be in the episode. We'll see. <laughs> he might get his own like Listen special because Bing point. Crosby is getting his own special. So, Good. so might Sinatra. We'll I see. love Sinatra. Please do a special on Sinatra. I'm not there and writing it unless it exposes that he's like a horrible person. Because I know, I know he's not perfect. So Listen, I yeah. know, but no like I don't know the specifics of it. The and so big <laughs> theme is these guys have done some bad things. <laughs> That's the big theme of almost everyone in the music industry. Before the turn of the century, the term crooning was mostly applied to a mother figure singing softly and sweetly to her children. But in the early 1900s, mostly through the 1920s, it became known as a man singing a love song softly. It was all about romance and smooth, slow singing. So not like belting it out like we've been used to up till now. It's like slowing it down, making it suave and smooth. We're slowing things down. What? We're slowing things down. Yeah. <laughs> sounded very... <laughs> Why? <laughs> Crooning really became a thing thanks to innovations in technology, specifically radio broadcasting and the microphone. Before those inventions and before they, like, expanded on it and made those actually, like, good, popular vocalists were the ones who could be heard clearly in the back oh. of a theater. That makes sense. Yeah. So it really wasn't about, like, the sound of your voice. It's not about, like, the tone. It's about being able to project it. The louder you could sing, the better. You have to, like, sing over horns and crap. Because you could be the most technically gifted vocalist in the world, but if they can't hear you past the fourth row in a theater, you're not going to be popular because no one's going to want to come see you. That makes sense. So Bing Crosby, when he first started out, would sing into a megaphone. And that's how, like, a few of the vocalists would, like, get their vo- project their voice into the back of the theater. But in the early 1900s, microphones started to become really popular. The first modern microphone was invented in 1876 that's by so early. Emil Berliner, who was working with Thomas Edison on it. Previously, Berliner had done a lot of work on the gramophone, which was an early way to record music. Is uh, Edison the one that we decided, like, stole a bunch of ideas from other people? We didn't necessarily decide that. That is what internet culture has decided. I have my own thoughts on it, and we didn't get into it. Hmm. 
Berliner invented an early microphone as part of an improvement on the telephone, and it was called a voice transmitter. So just a side note, stepping out of the script for a little bit, I had to scrap my first episode this week. It was an episode I was working on, I was researching and writing, and I realized about halfway through that it was just so boring. <laughs> and I was like, If you think yeah, it's boring, then like, we're in trouble. If I think it's boring, and if I'm dreading trying to research it, then like, there's no hope. No one's so going to care. <laughs> I scrapped it. and I'm. What was it on? It was about three of the most popular record companies during this period. That sounds so up your alley. Yeah. It was just kind of like how they started and like who the major players were and like what was going on. But like, it's just, it wasn't fun. I feel like if you were able to find like specific, like personal information yeah. about the people who started it, that would be cool. It was cool. hard to do though. But yeah, like you couldn't find and I was that. It, so and of course it's going to be boring. With three of them, I had to kind of like brush past things. So it was, eh. but anyway, Berliner, and was Berliner basically started one of the three big ones. He started Victor with another dude. So that's what made me think of that. Cool. They created the Victrola, which was a very popular recording machine. Whatever. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> so a couple of years after Berliner invented the voice transmitter for the telephone, a guy named David Edward Hughes invented the first carbon microphone. So in the early 1900s, people invented tubes that, like, helped the volume output. So, you know, microphones could actually be louder. Interesting. In the 1920s, radio became the primary way that people listened to music. So it was important to develop the microphone and make it better. Like, they couldn't just... Because people are listening to music through the radio now. So they had to have, like, a good microphone to transmit that music. So, all of that to say, by the end of the 1920s, there were, like, relatively well-functioning mics. They weren't, like, the crappy early mics that we've come to know and love in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> for <laughs> real. I was going to say, like, the ones that we're using. So, this isn't an episode about microphones, and I refuse to do another science episode. What? So, no. that's, like, a very rudimentary understanding of we the invention and development of the microphones. Innate all right, well, then you can do a science of music podcast. Ooh. <laughs> but, you know, it was important to know how technology led to the crooning style. So that was just kind of like very basic understanding of what developments were happening that kind of led to crooning being more popular. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about it not being mm -hmm. possible like until a microphone yeah. was invented. It makes sense. Yep. The lower pitched sultry voices can now be amplified and broadcasted. So crooner, the term crooner, actually became somewhat of a derogatory term back in like the 1920s. And that may be why people like Sinatra didn't want to be called crooners. Because that would make them old. No, not exactly. People said that the style of singing was base, degenerate, and corrupting. Wow. People also said it would be nothing but a passing fad. The New York Times said in an article, quote, they sing like that because they can't help it. Their style is begging to go out of fashion. What? Crooners will soon go the way of the tandem bicycles, what? mahjong, and midget golf. First of all, I love mahjong <laughs> <laughs> and midget golf. <laughs> but this quote, it spelled it M-A-H space J-O-N-G-G. -G. Yeah. That's how you spell it? I think so. I just M-A-J-O-N-G was how I've like seen it. I've seen it both ways. I okay, don't know about whatever. the extra G on the end. All right. So that's why people might not like to be called 
crooners because people thought it was bass and not great. At the start, most crooners were tenors. But towards the start of the 1930s, with people like Bing Crosby growing in prominence, it shifted towards baritone singers. Who called it? <laughs> well, I mean, you've heard crooners before, so... It's really not, not like that big of a win. It. You're just yeah. <laughs> it's not like that one time that I said um, Al Tolson was going to... What? Ragtime? What did I do with ragtime? You predicted it was a Western thing? Like a Western That's bar thing? Yes, I did get that exactly 100% right. And then I said Al Jolson was a racist and... I mean, that's also not hard to predict from someone from the 1900, like 1900 through 1910. Whatever. I'm just on it. I yeah. know all things. So there's a few people who are most often credited with inventing the crooning style, and it honestly was probably just a slow evolution, so it's hard to say that like w- any one person invented it. I know who invented it. Who? Me. <laughs> no. <laughs> There was a guy named Al Bowley, who was one of the early pioneers of like a crooning style, but he was British, so we're going to ignore him. (laughs) That's mean. (laughs) This is American history right now. So So Eugene Lucas was born on June 24th, 1900 in North Texas. I like his name better. Yeah. Eventually, his parents would divorce and his mother would remarry. Eugene's stepfather insisted that his new son take his last name, so Eugene Lucas became Gene Austin. The small town in North Texas was small enough that Gene's mother kept running into her ex-husband, so the new husband decided to move the family to Louisiana because he couldn't take it. Goodness, this guy has like some some control issues. (laughs) (laughs) So Gene's upbringing was kind of tough. His stepfather was an abusive alcoholic. All right. He was shunned by most kids his age because his family wasn't well off. So Jean, so Jean started hanging out near plantations, and he befriended an older African-American man named Uncle Esau. That is adorable. It is. It's like very origin story from a comic book happening right now. Esau had found Jean singing along, the planta- or singing along to the plantation workers' songs. Like, apparently he would just, like, sit outside of a fence and listen as the plantation workers sang their field songs, and he would just, like, sing along with them. Gene's parents hated Uncle Esau, but Gene continued to visit his house for the next ten years. Good on you, Gene. So, as he was getting a little sick of the abuse, understandable, Gene left home as a teenager and wandered Texas doing a variety of odd jobs. He joined a few cabarets and sang songs from Uncle Esau, and once he picked up from Texas Cowboys. At age 15, he joined the Army, but was kicked out after they checked his birth date and realized he was only 15. This is literally like a movie. Yeah, it is. So Gene moved back to New Orleans after he got kicked out of the Army, where he was, uh, which was like where he was before he joined the Army, and he started where he left off with music. He quickly became one of the top singers in parlor houses and in cabaret circuits. When he was 17, he got a letter from his mom that she was on her way with his stepfather to take Gene back home. Dun, dun, dun. Panicked, Gene joined the army again to get away from them. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy. So he spent most of his service stationed in New Orleans and continued to sing in parlors during his downtime. So to get away from his family that was coming to New Orleans, he joined the army and then stayed in New Orleans. <laughs> well, I mean... 
his parents aren't going to fight the whole army to get their son back. Like, he's enlisted now. He's the army's property. I think it's funny. He eventually, due to him, quote, forgetting to leave a ship until it was too late, what? was sent to the front lines and fought for a year in the trenches of World War One. All right. Like, he had a <laughs> job. Like, I remember doing this. I researched this a long time ago. I didn't write this part down. But apparently, like, he was working on a ship and helping, like, check people in or something. Like, I don't know. He was doing something with role. And then he just kind of decided that he was bored of being where he was. So he just, just didn't leave the ship when he was supposed to. Went to war? Yeah. And then he just wound up in the front lines of World War One. I'm bored. I don't want to <laughs> go home today. I don't know. Maybe I'll just go to war. <laughs> I don't know if he was, like, thinking, I'm going to end up in the trenches. He's just like, eh, I want something else. Let's so just travel the world. That's just that's, where he ended up. That's what the army's for. Just travel the world. <laughs> It'll be a good old grand time. So while he was in the trenches, he met a medical lieutenant who convinced him to become a dental assistant after the war. Pretty big step down excitement-wise, probably. I don't know about that. <laughs> and Gene tried to follow that career choice. But the whole time, he continued to follow his passion, which was singing in clubs and bars. Soon, he gave up on dentistry to study law because he kind of noticed, like, the dentist he was working for, I think this lieutenant, I think that was the guy he was working for, was getting, like, screwed over business-wise. So he figured that, like, he could become a lawyer and help him out with his deals and stuff. That's so cute. But he soon gave them both up to pursue singing full-time. Yep, saw that coming. (laughs) Gene never learned to read music, but he wrote over 100 songs by ear. He had a tenor voice that was softer and more suited to radio than other singers of the time. In 1923, he started his illustrious recording career by recording vocals for a guitarist whose voice didn't record well. So he was kind of like an uncredited singer for this guitarist. In 1925, he recorded a duet called When My Sugar Walks Down the Street that went on to be actually pretty popular. Do you want to hear When My Sugar Walks Down the Street? Of course I want to hear it. Are Gene you going to sing it for me? I am not. I'm going to let Gene Austin sing it to you. I don't know it. I can't. It's karaoke. It's the sugars walking down the street. There are multiple. That's not Gene. That's Eileen Stanley. Okay, good. <laughs> forward and listen to Gene. Well, we didn't really get to hear Gene I want to hear Gene. We're going to get there. Here's another song in like... But I want to hear him sing when my sugar walks down. I still had you get to listen to Eileen Stanley sing it. Who's that? That was the girl you just heard sing. Yeah, but who is she? At this well, point, why should I care? At this point, Gene became a Victor recording artist and wound up selling over 86 million recordings for them throughout his career. In 1928, he recorded a song called "My Blue Heaven" that would be the best-selling recording of all time until Bing Crosby's "White Christmas." That's a pretty big deal. Yep, here is "My Blue Heaven." Um, is it some girls? <laughs> no, I think it's just him. Is it him? I don't believe you. 
because it's the same picture of the ladies dancing <laughs> in is. the street. I guess that's the Ziegfeld Follies. Day is ending, birds are landing, back to the shelter wall, each little nest they love, nightshades falling, lovebirds calling, what makes the world go round? Nothing but love when whipper will call. It's pretty quiet. Can you imagine this being the best selling song of all time? I heard it like it's not have been very many songs. <laughs> like it's fine, it's just not it's coffee shop music. Yeah. It's nice coffee shop music. Maybe I would shazam it. That's Gene Austin's My Blue Heaven. He has a very nice, calming voice. So this isn't a biography of Gene Austin, so we're going to move quickly through the rest of his story. But his style was one of the original crooning styles. It was a soft, subtle voice as opposed to the typical, like, loud, voracious style that was popular pre-microphone and pre-recording. It was gentle and subdued. I like the older version <laughs> a lot better. Well, the older version, the future version was like Al Jolson, who, like... No, the, belted fu- it. the future version. Oh, so the newer version. Yeah. Literally the opposite. The opposite <laughs> of what I said. Because <laughs> okay. it's not as boring. At this point, crooning was still primarily tenors, but Bing Crosby and later crooners would popularize a more baritone style. So notable singers like Bing and Frank Sinatra all credited Gene Austin with inventing the style of singing. He was definitely one of the ones who made it popular, but there were other people also doing it at around the same time he was. People like Art Gillum, Nick Lucas, and Rudy Valley, who we're going to talk about next week. I feel like I've heard that name. Rudy Valley, yeah, he was really popular, so it wouldn't. But maybe me. I'm thinking like Frankie Valley. Yeah, maybe. No relation. I figured. <laughs> but I feel like if Bing and Frank are saying that Gene invented it, then that gives some weight to it at least. For sure. I mean, it definitely you can tell like it's a very different style than jazz like yeah. it definitely is closer to what they were yeah how they were performing it's just mostly the fact that like other people were also doing very similar stuff around this time so it's kind of hard to give it to one man but you know apparently whatever. it was him or yeah. that british guy that we're just gonna ignore that's true in his later career gene would host a few different radio shows star in a few movies basically what all of the popular recording artists of the day were doing he also dabbled in politics in nevada in the 60s I don't know how, because I didn't write that down. All right. Gene would die of lung cancer in 1972 at the age of 71. Mm. So he made it a while. With the success of Gene Austin and Ross Colombo, among others, crooning was starting to change popular music forever. The love songs started to sound more loving since singers could play with the lower notes and not have to belt out the lyrics to be heard. With movies and radio battling for the public attention, singers and performers were everywhere and had the ability to be broadcasted into every home. By the 1930s, especially with with the success of Bing Crosby, crooning started to become a thing all on its own and not just a passing fad. Crooning actually became synonymous with pop. Before this, pop was basically anything that was cheap, commercial, and lowbrow. Now, crooning was pop music. Probably for the same reason. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, uh, it because we didn't love it. But also because of its massive commercial appeal and focus on the female audience. 
that sounds like pop music. Yep, exactly. The framework of the pop star came from these singers, most notably Rudy Valley. His legions of crazed female fans and older detractors became the standard of pop icons I like love forevermore. This. <laughs> it's that's I mean it's still happening today. I like, love this so <laughs> like much. Like Justin Bieber is the Rudy Valley of the early 2000s. We've moved on to Harry Styles. Have we? Yeah. Okay. I feel like we've moved on from Harry Styles. Like who is it? Sean Mendez? I, I don't know. know. Post Malone? <laughs> He's a new kind of pop star. <laughs> Just had like a like years from now, like doing an episode on like how pop stars change. <laughs> Post Malone was like the 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 catalyst, the catalyst <laughs> and the change of how pop stars were <laughs> viewed. Oh my gosh! So crooners would mostly sing with their head voices, not their chest voices. They had a soft, smooth, conversational style. It was low, gentle, vulnerable, and intimate. And most of the crooners tried to look the part as well. What? Just think it's cute. (laughs) They were always well-dressed, clean-shaven, with done-up hair. There was a common trope of crooners trying to steal people's women. It was a major theme in a lot of the movies from this area, and the whole style kind of, like, played into that. This is like it's it's the it's the beginning of the pop star. Yeah, it's cute. It really like is. what? We'll hear more about that next week when we talk about Rudy Valley, since he is technically the first pop the star pop in American star. history. So what the heck did you do? I'm just breaking things. <laughs> Let me break things. I want to be destructive. The crooners of the 1930s started to be seen as not masculine because of their high-pitched voices, soft persona, and vulnerability. Also, it is worth noting that pretty much all of the crooner stars of this period were white. Fighting back against those those male standards. Yeah, they you were. Can steal your woman while being vulnerable. And white. Well, American I culture mean, was still not okay with a person of color being a pop star. It would take until like Nat King Cole to start changing that. But Louis Armstrong definitely helped a lot. Nat King Cole, dude. Yeah. I mean, Louis, like, Louis was the catalyst. Louis kind of changed a lot of the public perception of African-American stars, but he wasn't by any means a pop star. Like, he was mm-hmm. he was a jazz star. He was he was a star, but he wasn't a pop star. Yeah. There's a, there's a very <laughs> diff- there's a big difference <laughs> in the two. The crooning had a lot of detractors, as the popular musical style always does. I'll give you one guess what kind of people were detracting from crooning. Old people. Yep. <laughs> Probably because of its focused on love. It was too sexual. <laughs> well, yeah. Probably probably because of its focus on love and romance, it was seen as sinful and abased. Oh my God. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> How dare people find love? How dare <laughs> people enjoy it. love? The Cardinal of Boston said, quote, They are not true love songs. They profane the name. They are ribald and revolting to true men. What is a true <laughs> love song in his mind? I'd really love to Ave hear. Ave Maria. <laughs> okay, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna cut that off right there. I like Ave Maria. Yeah, I mean, it's I a good song. I used to know it. It's just very different from pop crooning. No. <laughs> 
Along with the sexual undertones of a lot of the music, crooning had a link to immoral jazz that was rampant in speakeasies. Literally, this is just so sinful, I can't even. (laughs) We talked a bit about how speakeasies and jazz went hand in hand during this period, and most of the crooners got their start singing jazz standards, and a lot of that happened in speakeasies where there was drinking and dancing and all kinds of stuff. The older Women generation Women showing their ankles. Yep. The older generation People were not okay with it. People out past 8 p.m. There was also this attitude of real men don't sing that was prevalent in the more macho man areas. What do you mean was? Yeah, it's true. We're, we're getting a little bit better. Yeah. Though. I think that was primarily born out of jealousy since crooners were a massive hit with the ladies. But in addition to crooners being seen in a very negative light, crooning fans, primarily the female fans, were also seen as hysterical and simple-minded. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> the New York Singing Teachers Association thought it would corrupt the youth. They said, quote, crooning corrupts the minds and ideas of the younger generation. Yep, all they're thinking about is... <laughs> His romance. Yep. There was also more legitimate backlash against crooning, but I think it's equally as silly. I'm so... I- what? Some people were focused on musicality and serious playing, so they thought that crooning was too commercial, focused on selling records, and not true musical art. Well, it's a different kind of musical art. Yeah. Like, it's the, it's a different kind of control mm-hmm. over your voice. I agree. They thought it was simple, easy, and ripping off music to make a buck. They can't sing like that. That's true. Lee DeForest, who is known as the father of radio, called crooning, quote, a continual drivel of sickening crooning by sax players interlaced with blatant sales talk. Dude, he's the one playing it on the radio. (laughs) I don't think he had a station. He probably just, like, developed and invented stuff that was important for radio. But still, he should be happy because crooning made his invention insanely popular. popular but he doesn't care about that he he doesn't want to make a quick buck yeah no. he does not want any of the money that comes <laughs> from crooners yeah he's not going to take a dime of it <laughs> no it, thank you in a lot of ways these more like musical detractors they were they were right i mean it was focused on commercial appeal and selling records but that doesn't mean it wasn't art like, it's just the guys the sensitive guys wanted to use their art to get the yeah. ladies. <laughs> and more than that, like some of the some of the crooners, they worked really, really hard to perfect their craft. Like they took it super seriously and like did a whole lot to try and make sure they were the best at their like their certain style of singing. So to say that it was cheap and easy is not fair because they worked very hard at it. Except for Bing Crosby, who apparently didn't care about anything. <laughs> It's just kind of the same old story of a new musical form catching on fire with the younger generation and the older not liking or understanding it because it's not made for them and then getting mad at it. The same thing would happen later with like rock and roll and then hip hop and pretty much punk, pretty much everything afterwards. It's just it's loud and old people hate it. It's just the story of new music in America. I don't want to be old. <laughs> I don't want to be complaining about the music that the children are listening to. (laughs) Aren't you already, though? I complain about certain artists. Yep, me too. You want to know why? I try to not complain about artists anymore. Because it's bass. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to complain about artists anymore, and I try to take more of a stance of, like, 
I don't like it, but it's not for me. Like, it's fine if you like it, but it's just, it's not my thing. That's what, instead of saying, like, this person is bad, I try and say, eh, it's not my thing. I feel like that gives me a healthier attitude towards the new music. Like Billie Eilish, not my thing. But if other people like her, cool. I don't get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In the 50s and 60s, crooning would be reclassified as easy listening, which would have a, which like really hurt the platform of the people who thought it was base and immoral. (laughs) There's another singer from this era who is one of the pioneers of crooning named Russ Colombo, and he deserves to be talked about, and maybe we should, but he's not in the plans right now. Why would you (laughs) say that? Just leave it at Russ Columbo. He was cool because this and then move on. But I'm going to leave this episode with one of his songs that is a really good example of early crooning. Cool. It's called You Call It Madness, I Call It Love. Oh, that's adorable. (laughs) Russ Columbo was super popular. He and like Bing Crosby had a bit of a rivalry during their times. Can you imagine being Bing Crosby's rival? Sure. And I think we'll talk about Columbo a little bit more when we talk about Rudy Valley, because they also had a rivalry. What is it about this guy and rivals? It's just like competition, because they're doing the same kind of thing, competing for the same audiences. By all the stars above, and you call it madness. Ah, but I call it love. I keep repeating. Right, well, we're gonna let He's this. Got p- my heart is <laughs> we're gonna let this play out. That's all we have for crooning right now. I don't have a correction corner. Do you have a correction corner? You're all I need. And so I'm bleeding. So next week we'll talk about Rudy Valley, who is the original pop star. I cannot wait. Hopefully we'll get that one up. On time. <laughs> I'm really, really excited to talk about this. I think it's going to be really interesting. And then we're out of jazz for a little bit. What? I think after that, we go into folk music. I think that's what's next up. Okay. Cool. Yeah. But we're out of jazz for the first time in weeks. <laughs> it's been months in jazz. Jazz is cool. It's nice to think camp out here a little bit. Well, this was our first non-hour-long episode. In a couple weeks, so. because I kept my ish together. <laughs> except for when I was trying to get the cats. And there was less to talk about. Yeah. And then the day Bye, friends. Thanks for listening. My love we'll see I you next week. Day. I built my dreams around. Somehow you made me care. Ba 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 